your field is our office. I'm Ashley Storby, and with me is Jay Zilski, field agronomist to my west. Jay and I were talking yesterday, and when we were getting off the phone, he mentioned that he was going to go out looking for an oak, an oak bud, I believe, to size up for a specific purpose relevant to the date of optimal date of planting corn. So I'm interested, Jay. One, how are you? And two, can you give us a report on uh, your findings on the oak bud? Well, absolutely, Ashley. I'm fantastic. And, and yes, as, as many of the listeners know, there is the old uh, adage that, uh, you know, when, when oak leaves are as big as a squirrel's ear, it's time to plant corn. And so we have our official North Mankato uh, oak tree that rests atop uh, the hill uh, overlooking the Minnesota River. And she has a name and it's Olivia. And I stopped by yesterday, and uh, as one might expect with the weather patterns we've had lately, uh, those uh, buds aren't anywhere close to uh, resembling an oak leaf or any sign of it soon. So um, it, it's very interesting. Uh, I looked back on my camera. Of course, a person has to save the pictures from one year to the next to kind of archive them. And uh, you know, maybe a little bit depressing to think, but it was uh, a year ago on the 12th of April that uh, Olivia's uh, leaves were officially the size of a squirrel's ear, uh, although I didn't have a squirrel there for comparison. And, you know, the interesting thing is that look at last year's picture. I know for a fact it's the exact same branch and the exact same buds mm -hmm. that I took the picture of last year. So that's the update on the uh, oak leaf. Ashley, what are you seeing down in your neck of the woods? Well, I um, I haven't looked at any oak trees, but I was in the yard and looking at our apple trees last night and they've just got tiny little buds. I don't have any trees with leaves on them, but that's an important distinction. See, I was thinking we were looking for the buds on the oak tree, but we're looking for that leaf to be the size of a squirrel's ear. Okay, so Absolutely, that's an important Ashley. distinction. So then when you mentioned that yesterday, I was... I thought, oh yeah, I remember I've, I've heard that. And I, I wondered if there was any other um, kind of folksy predictions like that. And I read, I read on a, a website um, that we should also plant corn when apple blossoms drop. And now you mentioned that the oak leaf was the size of a squirrel's ear this time last year. And there was, there was a good little bit of corn in the ground, not a whole lot, but we had that, that planting window around Easter and, and, there were some some operations that put some corn in the ground so that would line up and this year that would also line up with we are not fit to be planting corn yet but the apple blossoms dropping that seems a lot later have you heard any correlation with apple blossom drop i have never heard anything with regard to apple blossom drop actually i think here we would be very delayed. We would be well into May. And I think most farmers would be fit to be tied if they had to wait till that apple blossoms drop before they planted corn. That's all I would <laughs> say. Actually. Shaking that apple tree. Yeah. So Absolutely. That, uh, <laughs> that was a one of those times where I was thinking, gosh, you got to be careful what you read on the internet and be ready to um, yeah, very, make very stern interpretations. So in terms of planting date, then thinking of, of looking ahead, we're pretty cool yet. We've got some moisture in the forecast. Um, you know, we're, we're cooler than average as you look at the month of April and even peaking into May, it looks like we may, we may be a bit cooler than average as we get into May. And one of the things I've been noticing as I've been, I've been talking with our farmers and, and our customers is there's, there's a little bit of a, a difficult 
a difficult psychology happening right now where we anticipated we were going to have early planting this year because we knew we were coming into drier conditions. And, and now here we sit at today when we record it's April 12th and it doesn't look like we're going to have a, a good planting window ahead of us for at least a couple weeks. We'll see what happens with this rainfall we have coming. Um, but I, I think the difficulty of this in part is we thought we were gonna come in an early planting season as we were coming into 2022. And that doesn't appear as though it's going to be the case. And one of the things that, that is important to reflect upon right now is, is the value of that patience and waiting for that appropriate planting window and the conditions to be suitable for planting. And one thing that I, I like to reference back is this really nice uh, uh, article published by the University of Wisconsin. And it's got a little age on it now. I think I, I read this first, maybe it was five years ago even. Um, but it's a really nice article where the um, where corn was planted in three different planting dates, and then the the final yield was taken on those three different planting dates, and they were each a week and a half apart. And then they also planted um, portions of the stand such that three quarters of the stand would emerge at the same time, and then twenty five percent of that stand would be delayed. And it was, it was very uh, interesting, the data that, that they, they collected on those delayed plants. So when we looked at 75% uh, of the stand coming up evenly and 25% of that being delayed, we got about a 6% yield reduction with those 25% plants being delayed by a week and a half. So why, how do we delay a, a corn plant from emerging? Maybe it's underneath some residue. Maybe we didn't have good um, soil moisture in that particular area. Maybe the conditions were too cool. Maybe we had variable um, uh, temperature in that, that furrow. Maybe we needed to make some adjustments in seeding depth, or, or maybe it wasn't the right time to plant um, from a, a temperature perspective. So then interestingly, so we, we dock ourselves 6% yield in that 25% reduction. Then if we look at that whole stand that had been planted and we delayed it by a week and a half versus their early planting window, which in this situation was the first of May. So we go a week and a half later and we also lose about 5%, 6% yield potential. So what does 6% what does yield potential mean for us this year? So if it's a 235 bushel corn crop and we drop 5%, that's about 12 bushels. And if we put a, a cash price of 550 on that corn, that's $66 an acre that we're giving up by having 25% stand reduction uh, over a, a week or 25% delay, uh, um, 25% delays of plants over a week time frame. So that's that's just an example. That's not that's not going to hold true every year. Our GDU accumulation is different every year, but it's something to think about. There's a lot of value in 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 waiting until conditions are fit. So Jay, let's move on to a, a more depthy discussion in, in some things as we think about planting and, and specifically as it applies to our hybrid stress emergence scores. Jay, over to you. Thank you, Ashley. And today's guest to talk about uh, stress emergence scores from Pioneer is our product agronomist out of Mankato, Eric Schimmick. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. Eric, maybe you can start by telling listeners uh, about your background and then your responsibility as, as a Pioneer product agronomist. Sure. So um, for the majority of my career with Pioneer, I have um, been in the product side of things. So as a product agronomist, um, my primary role is to evaluate um, hybrids and varieties that are in the last stages um, of advancement before they, they are 
um, advanced to the commercial status where a customer would actually plant them. So when a uh, breeder starts uh, crossing some lines, they will start with thousands of different lines and it takes up to seven years before those products finally come to market. So our, our teammates in research, they, they'll have those products for the first three, four, five years. They'll go from thousands of lines down to hundreds, down to dozens. And by the time it gets to me, there's maybe you know, somewhere around 10, 10 hybrids or varieties left within a maturity, um, within a maturity range. And then we have um, a set protocol of plots that, that we plant across uh, our, each of our territories as product agronomists. And for two years, we evaluate, evaluate them and um, both agronomics and yield and determine which lucky one or two per maturity zone advance uh, and get into the commercial bag. And then from there, um, my job is to train our sales staff on those, encourage them um, you know, of what direction we want to go uh, with the product lineup and also determine what, what products need to retire out of the lineup to, uh, to make room for the new things. So I kind of have the best of both worlds. I have one foot firmly in, in research and I'm a liaison from salespeople feeding back to research the types of needs that we have. And the other foot is, is firmly in sales working um, in customer service. So I have the best of both worlds. Well, thank you, Eric. And I know one of the things that I really appreciate is, is all the in-depth performance information that Eric is able to provide to us in the field so we can make the right decisions as far as uh, products and, and volumes to advance um, before they go on to uh, your farm as, as a farmer listeners. And, and I think in addition to the performance information, um, I mean, a lot of it is some of those agronomic things, some of those ag key agronomic characteristics. And of course, one of those characteristics that comes to mind this time of year is stress emergence in corn and the pioneer stress test. And so, uh, Eric, why don't you, you tell listeners how we test for stress emergence in corn? Sure. So everybody sees a germination percentage on their, on their bag tag, right? It'll say 95%, and that refers to warm germ. So that is when conditions are ideal, you know, nice warm soil, warm water, those types of things what percentage of those seeds should germinate into a healthy stand. Um, what we would refer to as PST or pioneer, seed or pioneer stress test would be similar to a cold germ. And that, that isn't on the label, but we have standards on what will reach uh, the farm gate. Um, so there are many different types of cold germ tests that can be conducted. So um, a university lab or a third party, party lab, the seed associations do have somewhat of a standard protocol, but every lab will tweak a little bit on, on how they, they get that cold germ. And Pioneer has, over the course of almost 20 years now, um, come up with their, their own version of that, of that cold germ, um, which again is called the Pioneer Stress Test. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's patented, it's proprietary to us. Uh, they, don't tell, they don't tell people exactly um, what they do. Um, it's, uh, it's a trade secret, kind of like the Colonel Sanders uh, secret recipe. Nobody, nobody really knows what it is. But the difference with it is that this is, um, 
there is a field assay. So, the, so yeah, there, there's a lot of, of lab testing done. Uh, tens of thousands of, of, of batches run through the lab every, every, uh, every, every winter uh, before that seed hits the farm gate. But then we, we back it up with a field test behind that. So it's one thing to have a lab test say, oh, this was 90% germ. But if you actually put it into rugged field conditions, is it really 90% after cold or is it actually 30? And, and some things um, the lab just can't mimic. But so with our, with our stress test, we, we do a field assay, which reinforces the data behind the, the lab score. And where that ends up being is um, at the end of the day, if, if a seed lot has great warm germ, but really poor cold germ, we pull, we pull that seed off the market and dispose of it. I see, Eric. And so these field assays, how, how many locations and in it, where are they in the Corn Belt? So there are um, seven that we do um, within Pioneer every year. Um, there would be one uh, near our corporate campus near Johnston, Iowa, near Des Moines. There's one in uh, Ithaca, Michigan. There's one in Janesville, Wisconsin, Brookings, South Dakota, uh, near Olivia, Minnesota, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and out of the Moorhead Research Station. So the one closest to us uh, would be out of the Olivia Research Station. Okay. And do, so do all the locations have the, the same entry list? And are there any competitive entries in there that we, we compare ourselves to? Yeah, so we test um, basically every hybrid that we sell. We also still be, continue to test older hybrids that we know how they perform. And so they are kind of the standard or the check that we, um, that we compare to. And we sell or we test uh, experimental hybrids that aren't on the market yet and will not be on the market for several years to come. There's competitors in there. Um, so um, there, I, I'm just looking at the protocol for this year. There are 830 different entries um, this year times three replications at each location times seven locations is 17,430 observations in per year. Holy cow, Eric, that's a a crap ton of comparisons. That's all I got to say. That's a that lot is, of That is a scientific measurement there, Jay. Crap yes. ton. I like <laughs> a it. Crap ton. I like it a lot. Uh, so, you know, but you know what I'm dying to ask, Eric, is as crappy and cold as it's been across the Corn Belt thus far, do you know if any of the locations have been planted yet? So um, I don't know about the ones out of my trade area. So I, my, my territory would be basically uh, a line from the Twin Cities west through Wilmer to the South Dakota border and south. Um, but so I deal with the Eau Claire Research Station, the Olivia Research Station, the Brookings Research Station a little bit. As far as I know, none, none of them have planted any yet. I, I would suspect perhaps the Des Moines location probably has been planted. So there is no magic date on the calendar where things go in. Um, I talked to our research manager at Olivia actually just this morning and asked him, when's the earliest you've ever planted this? I mean, it's typically the first or second week of April. And he believes that the uh, 2012 that we planted 
that plot on April 5th. Um, this past year was also a really early date. He and I were both trying to remember. I think it was like the 7th or 8th, somewhere in there that it was planted this last year. So as a general rule of thumb, what I would say is everybody has that guy in the neighborhood, right, who's always first. These plots probably go in about a week or two before him would be the general rule of thumb. I see. Very interesting, Eric. And so you say our nearest location would be out of the Olivia station. And right. uh, Ashley and I had a chance to actually go out and make some observations there. And, and more specifically, it's near Atwater, Minnesota. You right. know, what can you tell us about that location? And then, you know, the process by which we plant those stress emergence locations. So, you know, you established, we, you know, we're going to go a week or two before that first guy in the neighborhood goes, so to speak, we're going to go super early, but, but what else uh, are, are the criteria and the process by which we plant those locations? Yeah. So typically what they're looking for is lighter ground, sandier ground. Um, and there's two benefits to that, that I can think of off the top of my head. Number one is you can get on that ground earlier right? Because if it's sandier, coarser soil, those types of things. But number two, that also has more temperature fluctuation. Um, heavy, heavier ground will be a more consistent, stable temperature. Lighter ground will, will swing with the air temperature. So um, that's where they typically want to be. Um, that location near Atwater is, is, is a very, very nice location. Um, so each entry is uh, a thousandth of an acre. So it's one row, it's 17.42 uh, feet long, right? And they'll drop 34,000 or 34 seeds to, to mimic a 34,000 plant population. So it's one row. They will plant um, again as, as early as possible. Um, I don't know that we've ever planted in March, but um, as soon as that calendar gets you know reasonable. So April 1, if that ground is fit, they will go plant it. And the goal, they, they would especially love to be right ahead of a rainfall that's coming or sometimes snow that's coming. Um, they, they would, they'd, they'd like to have that, that cold water hit that, that seed if possible. Um, so they will plant, um, you know, the protocol says two to two and a half inches. They'll go up to three inches. They, they'll, they'll try to, they want to torture those seeds. They, they want it to be the absolute worst case scenario. What will these things do? And, um, and again, there's three different replications of them out there. We have side experiments with different seed treatments. We have different seed lots, different ways that the seed, the, the seed was grown, harvested, all those types of things. There's many different um, things that we're, we're looking at. I don't know, both of you were there. I, just that stress emergence type of uh, area that had to have been a good 10 acres, didn't it? Of just one row plots, tens of thousands, what, 17,000 different looks out there. So um, it's, it's a really, really impressive thing to see, especially when you can see side by side, maybe the, the same hybrid, but a different seed lot. And this seed lot was good and that one was poor. And so this seed we threw away, but but that seed we kept. Um, it, it's for a product nerd like me, it, it's it's really cool. Yeah, it was a fascinating location, Eric. It was uh, I was glad that after all these years I finally had a chance. It always seems like we, we think we're too busy in the spring and the year and don't have an opportunity to 
take ourselves away from our, our local geography to observe something like that. But I, I'm sure glad we we did. And, you know, as, as I think about it, and as we walked those plots that day, you know, the next question I have is, okay, so you've planted the plots, now the corn's up. Now, how are those observations used to generate the stress emergence score? Um, you know, do we do we take total number of plants emerged? Is it, do, do we, uh, take in consideration if there's delays, you know, kind of, you know, why don't you sure. uh, dive into that a little bit for us, if you could, Eric. Sure. So they'll, um, a lot of this was done um, by hand. And now, now that we've, we've got drone technology um, that's able to count plants, some of this is being taken over by drones now, which is also very fascinating. Um, but yeah, so they'll, they'll wait, um, you know, plan as early as possible, wait till emergence happens. Um, probably right around V2 to V4, they would go out there and every single row gets counted. If, if you know you dropped 34 seeds in, ex, in every single one, you find you figure out, is there 17? So 50% emerge it or is there 30? How, how many are there? And then again, it's replicated. So you, you know, if you just happen to be in a different spot of the field or whatever, um, and then all of those hybrids are compared against each other and there becomes, there becomes an average, right? Okay. Um, and then, um, so if, if it emerges, that's counted, but then they also will come back and look at, okay, there's emergence, but there's also delayed emergence. So how many of these turned into runs? And then that is also, um, factored in as well. Like, okay, yeah, there was 17 emerged, but of those 17, five of those were, were runs. So, so that's also factored in there as well. So basically you have, again, these hundreds of entries, 800 entries out there. Um, and, and it's just simple math of, so if there's an average, when you go back to the catalog um, and you look at the stress emergence column, those, those hybrids that are average are getting a five. Things that are above average are a six or a seven and things below average are a four. So that's, that um, gives an indication genetically of, of how these things will do in the worst case scenario where we have really, really lousy weather after planting. I see here, you know, and it is interesting. It seems like every year as, as folks get started planting, there's always somewhere, if not everywhere, there's a lot of buzz about chilling injurita corn. <laughs> and the fact is you kind of referred to it earlier, you know, the significant of the first drink of water that the corn plant takes in within, a, you know, the first 24 to 48 hours. And if it's really cold, it can shock the seed cell. Is this how we should use these stress emergence scores is to determine a relative risk of uh, that type of chilling injury on different products? Yeah, it's just another, it's just another tool to help with planning um, and seed placement and those types of things. So um, as, as uh, not, not just, um, you know, I'm going to plant this field first. So therefore I want the highest score to go there. I, th I would also consider what is the forecast coming here? So if your first planted field is April 20th and the forecast is it's going to be 70 every day for the next seven days, I wouldn't worry about it. I, I would plant, you know, anything from a poor stress emergent score of a four to, to the six or seven, it, it probably isn't really going to matter. But if you are in a window where I'm going to get this, this field planted, the forecast says it's going to be wet for the next 10 days and I'm going to be out. 
and this is the field I need to go to and the temperature is going to drop, then maybe it's, I'm going to pull that seed off the pallet that has the high stress emergent score and plant that one rather than my first choice that maybe was going to be four, uh, a four or below average. So it's just, a, it's another tool in the toolbox to, to help with seed positioning, seed placement to hopefully give us the best stand at the end. There is no such thing as a bulletproof hybrid, right? I mean, um, but it, it, some of them are going to have better odds than others. Yeah, that's interesting, Eric. And, and of course, now I have to go and editorialize just a little bit here myself Please do. Please do. Um, on, on, on a topic of uh, chilling injury in, in corn, because uh, I have a, happen to have a very strong opinion about it. And, uh, you know, Jay, it's I've never this... known to have you uh, that you have a strong opinion. That's never. Well, yes, absolutely. So, you know, there, there's some folks out there that say there uh, is no such thing as uh, a chilling injury in corn. And uh, some some renowned agronomists that uh, from the state of South Dakota that happen to have a show um, talk about that very vehemently that there's no such thing as uh, chilling injury, it, and yet uh, it is a scientific fact. I think there's a number of agronomists and scientists know that there is a process. The challenge is this: is that our ability to assess chilling injury after after it has occurred is 100 percent. But our ability to predict ahead of time with any degree of certainty is, is, is really sketchy. And, it, you know, what I have seen over the years, my experience is it, it isn't just as simple as getting a cold rain um, and that cold water imbibed by that, that corn seed. It's, there seem to be other factors at work that uh, all come together. And I've thought oftentimes that there's probably been more bushels lost from people parking a planter out of fear of chilling injury than chilling injury has ever has ever caused um and you know that's on a big scale and i think you know one of the things that that people are inclined to do is sometimes they go with earlier planting and they're going to shallow up the planting depth and, and and that's actually probably going to increase your risk because is if you shallow up from that optimum two inch planting depth you increase the risk that you're going to have that fluctuation in soil temperature for one. And I think also, as you referred to earlier too, is I think there's a misperception that if we have lighter soils, well, shoot, they're going to warm up really fast and they do, but just like sands in the desert warm up really fast, they cool down really fast in, in the evening. And so the same holds true as far as the risk of chilling injury. So I, I kind of went off on a bit of a tangent there, Eric, but as, as we close out um, the, the podcast here, Eric, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about stress emergence and seed quality testing? I guess the only other thing that I would say is, is um, you know, th this time of year, right before planting, um, sometimes your uh, sales rep or your, or your um, salesman or, or your uh, uh, employee needs to come to you and ask for that seed back. Sometimes seed gets recalled because they continue to test it um, all the way up, up until planting. And uh, they, you know, a, a seed is a living organism and sometimes they, uh, the quality can, can go in the wrong direction. So it, it can be a very painful thing to take those cuts and to have seed recalled. But at the end of the day, um, you should probably thank them rather than be mad at them just because um, they, they want you to have the best, the best experience they can. Um, we have 
high commodity prices with very high input prices to go along with it. That seed is expensive. You, you want to be able to have the absolute best outcome that you can have. Um, so better, better to pry that seed away from you and uh, reduce that risk of a poor stand than to try to have to go replant it later. Thank you, Eric. I think those are some excellent words of wisdom. And this has been a, a great conversation here. And I hope it'll give our listeners a better understanding of the science behind stress and emergence scores. And, and really, you know, although we can't say for certain that a hybrid will or will not suffer the effects of chilling injury, hopefully it'll provide folks some guidance as far as relative risk. And a, a, as you said, uh, looking at the stress emergence score on a particular hybrid and then what the forecast is for the days following planting. So uh, Ashley, I'll turn it over to you to close out the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Eric. This was wonderful. I, I had a couple of my, my favorite key points. I, I really appreciated just understanding better from Eric, the robust nature of how we determine our stress emergence scores for our respective hybrids. It gives me a lot of confidence as an agronomist that we're making our, our, our best possible effort to give guidance of what we expect um, from a performance perspective from hybrids when we put them under stress. And especially as we look forward to this planting season, when we've got cool soils now, we've got moisture in the forecast, and we may have to use some of these scores as we, as we encompass planting windows um, throughout the, re the rest of April here. I also really appreciated um, your very black and white guidance of how we use the scores. A five is average, six and seven above average, and that four you would like to see um, planted in, in conditions that we don't expect these stresses, like the, the cool upcoming temperatures um, and moisture in the forecast. So really appreciated everything that you shared with us, Eric. Thank you for taking time. Wonderful questions, Jay. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Ashley Storby. Jay, you're on Twitter at SeedZeke. And Eric, where can listeners find you? Best way would be to email me, eric.shimek at pioneer.com. Perfect. You can join Jay and me at our next podcast as we discuss planting progress and planter setting tips. Thank you for listening. This has been episode eight of Your Field is Our Office. Be safe and stay healthy. Thank you.